Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Up next, the final show we pre-recorded at the Mackinac Policy Conference last week. We featured Detroit Development Director and City Planner Antoine Bryant, Rick DeVore, the new president of the Community Foundation of Southeast Michigan, and Monique Stanton, who is president and CEO of the Michigan League for Public Policy. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are in the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island during the Detroit Regional Chamber's annual Mackinac Policy Conference. Chance for business, political, and philanthropic leaders to gather on the island to talk about all the challenges that we have in Southeast Michigan, in Lansing, and Washington. Maybe have conversations that they can't have when we're at home, maybe come up with solutions that we have not thought of. We are talking with as many of the people who are gathered here as possible. And my next guest was a star at last year's Mackinac Policy (laughs) Conference. (laughs) Antoine Bryant is the director of planning for the city of Detroit. Stephen, I appreciate that uh, auspicious introduction. It's uh, a bit more than I was expecting, but uh, glad to be here one more time, and thank you for the opportunity. Well, I mean, I think people were excited to see you for the first time uh, uh, last time, and they were excited by some of the things you said mm-hmm. about uh, planning and, and development and the way we can approach those things a little differently mm-hmm. here in the city uh, of Detroit. You talked about a lot of things that you had done in other communities that I think uh, got got a lot of our attention. And so, uh, so I, that's the reason I wanted to talk to you this year and catch up and say, all right, you made a big splash. How much of it? Uh, how much of it are we are we really into at this point? Well, no, I, I appreciate that, Stephen. We're we're a, a ways down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm excited to say that many people are familiar or may have heard the term uh, SNF, uh, Strategic Neighborhood Fund, refers to Strategic Neighborhood Fund areas, mm-hmm. which are typically a collection of neighborhoods that we include in each separate opportunity. And we've made a tremendous headway uh, across the city. Uh, One of the things I'm excited about and I made in our initial comments last year was that I was committed not only to doing equitable work across the city, but especially in our neighborhoods outside of, you know, the downtown, midtown areas that people are um, familiar with. And so to date, we've had over $112 million of expended funds in our neighborhoods uh, across in neighborhood plans, in the creation of commercial activity, uh, in residential housing. We have over 117 single-family rehabs through our Rehab and Ready program. Uh, it's $12 million committed right there. Uh, we've had four uh, parks and open spaces that were created, uh, over 
four and a half million dollars there. Uh, six streetscapes. Everyone's very familiar uh, with the work we've done on Livernois, but also on Kirchival and others that have helped to transform uh, those areas and make them amenable and exciting for our residents. And then the one I'm really excited about and that I'm intimately involved in are the neighborhood plans, yeah. where our team not only is working with our uh, residents, but we're working in the communities and engaging the people there. And we've completed 10 of those neighborhood plans already. So one of the things uh, that we talk about all the time now in neighborhood development in particular is this idea of walkability, right? Uh, the, the proximity that your neighborhood has to the things that you need. You're a New Yorker. <laughs> that means something different in a city like New York than it does in a city like Detroit. Um, talk about how we can create walkable communities over 139 square miles with, you know, the, 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 with the population that, that, that we have. It, it's not a one-to-one -one translation. Yeah. It's not a one-to-one -one translation. What I would argue, though, is that many of the concepts for walkability, especially for even for a city, quote-unquote, like Detroit, are uh, the same things people want to see wherever they are. So that means uh, safe sidewalks. Uh, we determine and uh, define a safe sidewalk not only by a specific width that you need to have, but also the availability uh, for people of various uh, abilities and capacities to navigate mm -hmm. that sidewalk, mm -hmm. right? So if someone is older, if someone's younger, if someone's physically challenged, if someone's in a wheelchair, can they still get down that sidewalk safely? We're looking at safe intersections, right? So people can cross a street uh, safely and not have to kind of do frogger whizzing through cars going back and forth, yeah. right? Um, Walkability also talks about the vegetation that we use uh, to not only shade you, uh, but also to have um, breaking up some of the hardscape on a street or on a sidewalk. Uh, people are always familiar with kind of the bike lanes, right? They're very polarizing uh, opportunity. But in addition to having a safe way for people to ride a bike, they also serve as a buffer from vehicular traffic. And so a bike lane actually has a number of different uses that people can use. And then lastly, uh, we're looking at increasing the opportunity for signalization. Uh, where do we not only put our uh, street lights and our stop signs, but also making sure that they are um, attuned appropriately so that the, st the stops in between them are both amenable both for our drivers as well as for our uh, pedestrians. And so there are a number of things that go into walkability, uh, and we want to make sure that people can traverse our city in as many ways as possible, as safely as possible. Yeah. So you... you if you say the word neighborhood in, in Detroit, um, that means something culturally to us. 100%. Super important, 100%. right? And, and everybody thinks of their neighborhood as the most important neighborhood <laughs> in the city, right? I, I want the things I want now, and you should mm -hmm. be focused entirely on that. But you also have to include me yep. in the decision-making. 100%. And that, that's, a, that's a place where we have not always delivered. Uh, in city government, I think here, and in, in making people feel included. I wonder what what you have experienced since you've been here, in terms of um, you know the response to, to to people in neighborhoods about how they want to be included and how they expect you to make that happen. So I, it's it's uh, people are integral to a successful implementation of the work they want to see. And what I found is that many of our residents, not only do they want to be included, many of them have already been working on their own. They, right. And in more times than not, they would rather work in concert with the city as opposed to instead of the city, mm -hmm. right? Uh, oftentimes, there's been many residents, many uh, block clubs, if you will, that have felt ignored 
And so when I actively uh, said I wanted to uh, hear from everyone and participate, many of them appreciated just being listened to. And so it's been kind of opened the floodgates now. And now it's, it's, it's exciting to have uh, residents from across the city, whether it's Russell Woods or Brightmore or uh, Cody Rouge, wherever, that are very passionate. But uh, now we're working together. And, uh, you know, I get text messages. You know, I got one from Shirley Birch on the east side, who's mm-hmm. been phenomenal. I've uh, been very excited that we're working together on some work that she's doing on the east side. Uh, I work with Karen Washington and Pat Birch uh, over what they want to see on John R. And, uh, you know, now we're having frequent conversations, but also I can tie them in directly uh, to resources at the city to help to make th- many of their desires manifest. And uh, we've come a long way, I believe, just in my short time here to ensuring that our residents are included in the development of their, uh, their neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Antoine Bryant. He is the director of planning for the city of Detroit. We're talking in the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island during the Detroit Regional Chamber's annual Mackinac Policy Conference. Um, I, I want to talk about tax policy uh, and how it affects uh, planning and development. There's this recent proposal to create a split tax rate uh, in in the city of Detroit, which would tax, you know, vacant land differently from people's houses. Uh, the idea is to give um, the idea is to give residents, those of us who own houses and pay taxes on them in, in the city, a little bit of a break on our on our taxes, which we of course all badly need. Um, but that, there, there are implications for planning and development uh, behind that. We're talking about it in terms of, of finance and, and, and tax rates. Uh, it's also about what the city looks like and what neighborhoods look like in terms of vacant land. I wonder what you think of the idea of split tax rate policy, but also what you think uh, the implications are for planning and development. So that's a, a fascinating question, and I'll tell you, you know, to split tax, I think there's a real value for it and a need for it for our residents. Uh, it'll be a tremendous opportunity to address some of the challenges that we've had uh, from a household-to-household basis about some of the, the tax implications. Uh, however, I have to buffet that with the reality of what it would look like considering the extensive amount of vacant land that we have yeah, so in our much. portfolio. Yeah. Um, my background's in planning and architecture. It's not in finance and tax, right? <laughs> and so I have to look at it under using that rubric. Um, our, I know uh, the office of the CFO and all of them are making some pretty critical analysis about that. Um, I think it's something that it could be a great benefit, uh, but I'm trying to ensure that we can quantify and balance it, considering you know we have huge swaths of our city, especially on the east side, uh, but definitely all over. Um, where the tax implications of that could be pretty dramatic mm-hmm. on our fiscal bottom line. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's value to a split tax. Now, how deep um, we can use it and how essentially how far down of a quote-unquote split that we can do, uh, I'm a little hesitant on. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that our finance team really has to deliver some real hard solutions to that for the, the mayor and for council. Uh, I think we should do it. I think there's some value to it. Uh, now, how far down it goes, I really can't talk yet about. Uh, have you, I mean, have you been surprised by just how much vacant land we have? I mean, you've worked in other cities. You, uh, again, grew up in New York. It's different here. It, 
and sometimes it shocks people when they see it. <laughs> it is, it is. I will have to say, it was something that I was aware of academically, right? Something yeah. I know of, something right. people had told me about. <clears throat> um, I'd visited Detroit probably a dozen times, on various times. I think I told you before I moved here. Yeah. Um, but in this current capacity, in my role, uh, it's incumbent that I not only uh, know the city, drive the city, but I spend a bunch of time. You know, I'll park my car and just walk. Mm -hmm. And when you really walk uh, across vast neighborhoods where there might be one or two houses on an entire city block, you get a different perspective. Uh, I, I um, dichotomize that. I spent um, two days last week back in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. uh, my younger sister got her master's. We had to support her. <laughs> and I spent a day just walking around Brooklyn where I grew up. And I really realized how dense Brooklyn was when I juxtapose it with where I'm living right now. And so right when I looked at that, it uh, gave me a different lens. We're in the midst of working with our team on a, a vacant land strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have a lot of land. And one of the things I, I want to uh, you know, let your listeners know, we're aggressively looking to try to find as many different solutions as possible. Um, the residents have offered a variety of ideas, everything from open space to gardens to parks to dog parks to urban farming to uh, various forms of housing. Uh, all of them have uh, validity. What we're trying to do is ensure that those uses are amenable to the context of where they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, as well as make sense purely from a fiscal standpoint, right? The city still needs to create revenue in some capacity. Yes. And so we can't make every vacant land uh, a dog park, right? Uh, but, you know, we do think there's enough um, real estate out there that we can be responsive uh, to the desires of our residents, but also continue to grow a phenomenal Detroit. Yeah. So, so speaking of parks, uh, the Joe Lewis Greenway mm -hmm. broke ground recently, and I, I think uh, in terms of transformative projects mm -hmm. to the way we live mm -hmm. in the city, this probably rates top three in my in, in my lifetime. Hundred percent. But I also think if I say Joe Lewis Greenway to most Detroiters, they would look at me and not quite understand. Sure. Uh, what it is. So, so first, just just explain what we're trying to accomplish there. So, the Julius Greenway is going to be a just an exciting and uh, excellent addition to the open space network here in the city of Detroit. Uh, we have a running joke in the department. You're not allowed to say the word transformative anymore, right? Because <laughs> oh, it's I, almost I, a drinking game. Now. I've heard it way too much in 2022. <laughs> but it's 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 going to be uh, that much of an impact. It's yeah. going to be a loop. Uh, 27.5 miles that'll go through over 22, 23 neighborhoods. So it will cross the entire city. Um, and then it's going to link uh, to the DeQuinter Cut and directly down to the riverfront. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been phenomenal for me uh, as a new Detroiter to meet residents who don't go to the river or don't uh, go often because they feel that they're, they either don't have an easy access or it's not for them or all these kinds of things. And we're looking for the JLG to be a unifying element uh, to bring people uh, not only to literally and figuratively have a green space in their backyard, mm -hmm. but also have a connection uh, to the riverfront. It, it is buttressing. Uh, over 40% of it will go uh, behind, directly behind residents. Right, so you'll have your own personal green space to right. some extent. So we're really excited about that. But also the Southwest Greenway uh, broke ground, so that's already <laughs> underway, and that's part of the JLG. And then a section uh, along West Warren is already under construction right now. 
And so by 2024, you'll have a significant amount of it completed, and it'll be a tremendous opportunity. Um, many people may be familiar with the Beltline in Atlanta. Uh, there's the High Line in New York. Mm -hmm. There's a number of these kinds of entities across the country, <clears throat> and we're looking for the JLG to be the best of those yet in the country. Wow. Wow. That is a bold ambition. That's those, what we're going for. Those are, that, that's really great. Go big or go home, guys. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I also want to talk about um, industrial blight. Uh, we have two things going on with industrial blight that I think have people's attention. The Packard plant, which has been that way for a really long time, mm -hmm. and, and that fits and starts trying to, to get to a different place there. But then we had this great news about the Fisher Body Plant, which mm -hmm. has been emptied less time, but is probably more recognizable to people because more people probably drive past it. Uh, but the idea that that will come back mm -hmm. to life mm -hmm. at least makes us think about mm -hmm. what's possible at places like Packard. The, the mayor has been committed to uh, addressing industrial blight. The city has a phenomenal industrial uh, nature and history to it. Uh, it's been built on industry in many respects. Uh, and I think there's an opportunity here for us to recognize and embrace that industrial nature when we look at repurposing entities, but also we now have the resources and ability uh, to demolish uh, you know things where it makes the most sense. Yeah. You know, uh, many of your listeners are probably aware that uh, Judge ruled that we will be demolishing much of the Packer plant, yeah. which has been a tremendous not only eyesore but a, a drain yeah. on that immediate community. So we're really excited that it's going to be uh, ensuing very shortly. But the Fisher Body uh, Plant, which is going to become the Fisher Twenty One Lofts, uh, embodied and led by uh, Greg Jackson, Richard Hosey, and, and Lawan, and that group. You know, the largest African-American-led development in Detroit's history. Mm -hmm. That's our understanding. Yeah. Uh, but to transform what's been an eyesore as well uh, into 430-plus units, uh, mixed use over the course of the next couple of years, including affordable housing uh, and, and some public amenities, is going to transform that opportunity as well. Right now, that is an abandoned, huge 600,000-square-foot building with vacant land around it. Yeah. If you walk around there, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Um, but to... Uh, change not only that entity itself, but by context, the immediate surroundings as well, is going to be a tremendous lift not only for that neighborhood, but for the city at large. And those are just two examples of many, many others that we're looking at. You know, where does it make sense to just demolish it and make a new opportunity? Where does it make sense to revisit, right? Yeah. We, you, you guys are familiar with um, uh, some of the other buildings where uh, we're going to be able to transform them and really uh, hearken and, and look at the past, but also have a new vision for the future. We're really excited about that. Yeah. And, and what about our commercial corridors? We've been talking for a long time about those. Some of them are starting to really pop and come back to life. McNichols, uh, Livernoy, um, we've, we've got so many of them, though, right. and they had fallen so far. Uh, do we need a, a sort of grand approach, some sort of master plan for for commercial quarters and how they connect to, to neighborhoods and, and support neighborhoods and the needs of the people in them. Ironically, the mayor's laser focused on commercial quarters, right? Uh, we've been uh, looking at the stability of our neighborhoods and it's, it's ironic and challenging that we have a number of very intact uh, very stable neighborhoods, but when you walk three blocks to the east, the commercial corridor that's there 
um, is dying or has been dead for it's quite depleted, some years. Yeah. And so the mayor has uh, focused on it in a number of ways. First of all, uh, many you may be aware of uh, the hire several months ago of our Blight Zarina, uh, <laughs> Katrina Crawley, who has been uh, ratcheting up um, not only the notification and, and uh, ticketing of uh, bad actors, if you will, on our corridors, but also our team, the plan development, we've been working uh, steadily on uh, commercial corridor design guidelines, mm. which will be a great amenity not only to existing owners, but also to new owners as well about what we expect to see uh, along our commercial corridors. And so now we have the opportunity to not only fully and critically define what a vibrant community and a vibrant corridor should look like, but we want it to be a place where a commercial corridor in Detroit looks just like uh, one in Farmington or one in Dearborn or one of our neighboring cities. Uh, we have a phenomenal city, and our corridors are going to reflect that as well. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for uh, joining us here on Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will have more Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are in the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island during the Detroit Regional Chamber's annual Mackinac Policy Conference, uh, a chance for business, political, and philanthropic leaders to get together, talk about the challenges that we have in Southeast Michigan, talk about maybe different solutions to those challenges, talk in a different way about those challenges than we do when we're at home. Uh, our next guest is one of the newest members of the philanthropic leadership community here in Southeast Michigan. Rick DeVore was named the second president in the history of the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan in April of 2022. He joins us now to talk about his new task. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Good to see you, Stephen. Yeah, so, so first of all, congratulations. Uh, uh, the Community Foundation is such an important part, not just of the philanthropic arm or dimension of, of Detroit and the way we get things done, but it's it's an important part of philanthropy, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of uh, uh, the works behind uh, a lot of the philanthropy that we see here in, in Southeast Michigan. You have an unenviable task, as far as I'm concerned. Miriam Nolan... Uh, created uh, the modern uh, idea of our community right. foundation, led it for, for years and years. Talk about walking into the role now and what's on your mind. Well, it's interesting because you're correct. It's much easier to follow a train wreck, right, than, <laughs> than what I'm doing here. And, and also the only leader since 1984 when Joe Hudson had the idea of starting the community foundation. And it's similar to the board chairs. There's only been four. Hmm. Joe Hudson... Gene Miller, Alan Gilmore, and now Jim Nicholson. Jim, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, so the stability is the key there. The legacy of Miriam, in my opinion, is how she has really gotten the word out. She has two legacies in my mind. One, getting the word out to small not-for-profits that you really need to think about starting an endowment. 
we have 230 endowments for small non you know not-for-profit organizations because if you can if you can find a way to get an endowment to cover your overhead mm -hmm. then the rest of the money can go out in the community and do the good work you absolutely. need to do absolutely it's kind of the holy grail the other thing that she did which is you know when you really think about the grand bargain it's really what we do is convening and collaborating and then, of course, as you said, kind of doing kind of the nitty-gritty back office, getting the 990s, doing the reporting, doing the audit. And that's representative today in the, what we announced, you know, Tuesday, um, Wednesday on the porch yesterday, um, collaboration with Wayne County with the New Economy Initiative. That's not an easy task. You know, you have $32 million coming in from Wayne County and ARPA funds, and then $20 million from the philanthropic community. But with that comes also you know the federal guidelines for compliance and audit issues and that's the kind of thing that we can bring to the table is convene a group of like-minded you know philanthropic groups mm -hmm. but then also make sure that all the accounting and compliance work is done and put some of our own funds in as well which I think gives us credibility but if you think about getting back to Miriam for a minute if you think about her legacy one of her probably biggest legacy was being one of the many heavy lifters in the Grand Bargain. Yes. And that's the thing I think people don't realize, even, uh, you know, I ran the PNC Foundation in Southeast Michigan, but even those of us that were in the foundation community did not understand probably properly the bandwidth of the community foundation mm -hmm. and what it can do and how it's different than a private foundation. Um, but I have to tell you, Stephen, one of my roles is to you know, chair uh, the committee of the foundations that basically have to hit the go button when it's time each year to disperse money to the city of Detroit on the grand bargain. Yes. If that doesn't make your heart skip a couple of beats, <laughs> nothing will, right? Right, right. And I'm like, oh, how I, important I, is that? I have right? to do what? <laughs> um, but I think it gives you an idea of the variety. You know, you talk about health-related causes, and we're involved with opioid and mental health issues, and we're right now doing some uh, work in the community trying to deal with mental health, especially in, in, in the black and brown community mm -hmm. and how it's affected. It was already an issue pre-pandemic and now it's even a bigger issue post-pandemic. So we're in conversations about how we do that. So it, what I love about this job is just the variety and, and all the different lives you can touch in a positive way. Yeah. So uh, you were talking about the important work that uh, a community foundation does helping other nonprofits right. uh, just essentially operate themselves in a way that is about long-term sustainability. Right. I worry a lot about long-term sustainability for an awful lot of philanthropic efforts in Southeast Michigan. And I think Miriam did too. I, I wonder if you can talk about some of the threats that exist to uh, their stability. Uh, do we have too many? Uh, do we have, are we, are they doing too much? Right. Uh, those are questions that I think are, are really kind of urgent right now. I think that, that's uh, quite a loaded question. <laughs> I would tell you that um, I do think that there is, first of all, from a standpoint, I think there's a misunderstanding with a lot of people in the community, the, the public, that the economy is great, so there's really not the need. Mm. And that is not true. Mm. Um, but so that's the first thing. 
The second thing, though, you know, I do think is there's um, a lot of competing factors, a lot of foundations of standing up efforts that look very similar, and I think is a little confusing. And, you know, really, um, you know, when you start talking mergers, people get extremely nervous, they right? Do. And they've taken away my job. And, <laughs> but really, I think the focus has to be on getting the dollars out in the community, helping the people that's part of your mission. But many times, you're right, you see people get in the mischief of territorial fights and so mm -hmm, forth. And mm -hmm. you see this in education where you have a lot of extremely well-intended folks, but they're almost competing, which then gets to be confusing for the large foundations and the general public. Yeah. Um, so I do think that um, in the future, if the question is how many not-for-profits will there be, that's a great question. It does seem like in some areas we have a lack in other areas, maybe too much. Too much, yeah. You know, I do think now I would not say there's a lack of people that need to be involved in mental health issues. Hmm. And I think, you know, you're seeing that over and over. That we need we, more than what we more have. More than what we have. And so I, I think um, I think the people that say we've always done it this way are going to legislate themselves maybe out of existence eventually. We have to be able to adapt. Um, one of my big mantras right now and one that I really want to be able to take on is how do we become relevant to the first gen philanthropists? Yeah. Wow. Not not the multi-generational sure. that is born into this situation, but there's been a monetary event. You know, how do we how are we relevant to the Doug songs right. of the world? Right. And what they want to do. And I think that's where we at the Community Foundation are really set up for this. Because if you think of some of the efforts we're in, health, environmental matters, with the Great Lakes Way, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, open spaces, we're involved in a lot of issues that I think the new gen, you know, audience is interested in. But we, at the Community Foundation, need to do a better job of explaining our value proposition. Yeah. Because a lot of people don't know who we are. <laughs> they don't, right? And you do because you're a reporter, you're in this business. But like I was saying, when I was at running the PNC Foundation, I knew they were different, but mm -hmm. I didn't really know the bandwidth. Yeah. We need to do a better job of it. Hmm. I'm talking with Rick DeVore uh, in April of 2022. He was named just the second president in the history of the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan. Um, you know, I, I, I do want to talk about the role that philanthropy is playing in Detroit. Uh, and this is something I used to talk with Miriam a lot about, too. It's changed so much. Uh, if you think about when she started out, what philanthropy right. was doing and what it's doing now. Um, and there are a lot of people who wonder whether the role that philanthropy is playing, particularly in trying to propel the city forward in its redevelopment efforts and rethinking, that it's kind of out of philanthropy's lane, that too many things are out of philanthropy's lane and that they're uh, replacing things that government should do or, or right. business or, or things like that. I, I wonder what your take is uh, on all of those things. Well, first of all, it has changed a lot. I mean, just think about when Rip Rapson got to Kresge. When Kresge's model was basically, you raise money for a building and we'll, we'll give you half. We'll help you out, yours. right. And that was it. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously Rip Rapson and the team at Kresge changed that whole dynamic. The other thing that I think is pretty unique in Detroit, and this is something that, one of the reasons why maybe I was attractive to replace Miriam, is when I was at 
the PNC Foundation, we partnered with Skillman, with Max and Marjorie Fisher, with Kresge, with mm-hmm. Kellogg. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I think this community has done. You know, if, if you look at it, and then I think also we have some fresh ideas. You know, you look at Kylie, who runs Balmer. She comes in with a different lens. Her background with Steve Balmer's and his wife are trying to do is different. But um, so I welcome, you know, them as a kind of a recent entrant, right? But I think it's this collaboration going forward. I think where some of the mischief right now is, you know, where do you take a stand or not on some of these, what I call, Disney-ish issues, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, the, no matter what you say, because keep in mind we have a number of donor-advised funds, and we have a lot of supporting organizations. More than likely, I could tell you, I could go and find you, Stephen, grants that we've made that might be on both sides of the same issue because that's what the donor wants. Mm-hmm. But with that said, I think we probably need to be more vocal about some things that are troubling the community and just be willing to take the risk that somebody might not be happy with us, but it's the right thing to do. Mm. Whether we're talking about voting rights, whether we're talking about you know different issues. You know, we're somebody asked me the other day, are, are we going to be you know observing Juneteenth? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. I mean it's a federal holiday now, <laughs> and uh, we're going to do it in the same cadence as the federal government. Mm. And you know, so we're. Um, I think we have to adapt. One of the things that surprised me, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, Mm -hmm. that shocked me, and maybe it's because I came from an institution that has an extremely strong moral compass, is I wanted to know what the volunteerism program was. At the community foundation. And found out there wasn't one. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It's kind of like an oxymoron, right? (laughs) We don't volunteer in the community, so we're starting one. We have to, not only because it's the right thing to do, but I think that's what the, the community expects. And also, if I want to become a place sought after to work, we have to have that as an element of what we're offering employees. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, speaking of mission and, and maybe changing mission, uh, you are embarking on a strategic plan that's going to that's reflect current and future needs of residents of the region. I think right. that's a really interesting way to state that. I, it, it really is, because again, uh, I'll give you my example. Somebody asked me what I think about hybrid work. Mm-hmm. And my view is it doesn't matter what Rick DeVore thinks about hybrid, it's the market. Yeah. So, And to me, the same thing, building a strategic plan and I burst out of my office and say, here it is, <laughs> that's worthless. We have to and I call it more a strategic direction than I do a plan, mm-hmm. but we have to go out and listen to the community and then listen to our partners, whether it's Wilson, Kresge, and our employees. And I think we have to do this in a way that's the same way you need to do philanthropy. You can't go out on a Saturday morning, you and I, and tell a neighborhood, this is what you should do, <laughs> and be prescriptive. Yeah. You need to build these things ground up what works in southwest Detroit might not work on the east side. So, you know, we've seen people fail at this, and I want to make sure that this strategic direction follows that same principle. Yeah. Okay, Rick DeVore, uh, new president, second president of the Foundation for Southeast Michigan. Uh, great to have you with us, and uh, thanks for coming by on Detroit today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate Excellent. it. Thanks for being here.
All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more Detroit today. During the Mackinac Policy Conference, our annual trip up north to talk about our challenges in Southeast Michigan in a different environment, get people who don't see each other every day a chance to talk with one another, maybe come up with different solutions to those challenges, maybe talk differently than we do when we're at home in Southeast Michigan or Lansing or Washington. Uh, joining us next is Monique Stanton. She is president and CEO of the Michigan League for Public Policy, a really wonderful uh, advocacy uh, organization here in the state of Michigan. Monique, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah, and, and welcome back to Michigan. You're someone who was here for a long time, mm -hmm. was away for a bit, and now uh, you're back running uh, MLPP. Yeah, I'm back. It's wonderful to be back home in Southeast Michigan yeah. and in Detroit. Yeah. So uh, tell our listeners about the Michigan League for Public Policy. Those of us who are in the press, we know what you are and what you do. I'm not sure that everybody uh, shares that knowledge. So we've been around serving Michigan for 110 years. We really focus our work on advocating for people who are vulnerable populations, so issues around economic security, racial injustice, health, education. A big part of what we do is also Kids Count, so it's an annual profile about the health and well-being of young people in our state. And then we look at our state budget, so do we have an equitable tax structure, do we have enough resources to address inequities within the state of Michigan, and can we really pay for the priorities to, to help make our state a better place to be? Yeah. Um, when we think of the issues that you were just talking about and the framework you were just talking about, I always just come to the quick conclusion that we're getting it wrong <laughs> in Michigan. We're getting it wrong on so many of those fronts. Um, let's start with our children and your kids count uh, work. Uh, we, we underinvest in children in such a profound way in this state and I don't ever think that, again, that your average citizen really understands how differently other states are now thinking about this and how they're kind of lapping us uh, right. in, in, in terms of uh, getting ahead. Right. There's so many states that are, are, you said it perfectly, lapping us, doing better than Michigan. You know, our state budget is a demonstration of what we value and prioritize, and we know we need to invest better in kids. So we're looking at things this year, increased investment in early on, so it's a, a program for young children with developmental disabilities. We're talking about how can we improve uh, state funding for, for the school system, so can we look at something down the road as a weighted school funding formula? Can we do more to address um, healthcare access for young people, behavioral health issues, concerns both from mental health and substance use disorders, so there's so much more that, that we couldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. And the governor's budget actually really did have some strong investments in, in those areas. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about the, the the budget and the things that stood out to you. There were a lot of things that stood out to me about 
advancing the ball, right? Not just saying let's keep pace with this, but let's invest in the in the future and make something stronger. Right. So the pandemic really shed a light on inequities, whether it's for childcare issues. So this this past year, we invested $1.4 billion. That's something that we've been working on at the league for the last 10 years on how to improve access to childcare. We've seen all kinds of issues come to the forefront, housing, infrastructure, school issues, childcare. And so this is an opportunity for us to do better than we've ever done before, both with our ARPA funding, so those large federal investments, as well as our ongoing state budget. We have a huge surplus right now in the state, so we want to use this as an opportunity to make some fundamental transformational change for people that have been historically left out. Yeah. Um, immigration and mm-hmm. SNAP, uh, those are other big issues mm-hmm. for MLPP. Yeah, yeah uh, immigration is one of uh, our big big priorities. And one of the things that we're really looking at right now, a couple things, it's important. We've just released some data sets around the role that immigrants play in our in our community. We have 11% of business owners are immigrants, so they're a major contributor to our economy. We're talking about $8 billion in taxes, uh, spending power of $20.3 billion. One of the things that we're looking at is something called IKEA. It's for, for children who are here in, in the United States. In Michigan, we have the option, so this, these are for young children, to be able to expand their access to health care coverage. So to lift that mandatory waiting period of five years, these are typically for people who have green cards. Because mm-hmm. we know young people uh, need health care. We all do. And so we should make sure that young people are getting their health issues addressed early. And that's one way that the state could, could do that, is to expand that IKEA option. Yeah. Um, when, when we think of um, you know the, the kind of vulnerable populations that uh, that you're advocating for uh, here in Michigan, I, I feel often like there aren't enough voices in the legislature right. <laughs> who are taking taking right. those up, and that's not just because there's a Republican majority. I think it's also because um, you know children in particular, but 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 other vulnerable populations don't find agency in, in our politics right now. And that's a really difficult conversation to have, but it's also a different, uh, difficult thing to try to figure out how to fix. Right. So one of the things that, that I don't think everybody's really aware of that we do at the League is we have a really strong community engagement team. We're hoping to make this stronger uh, and expand it. But we have uh, staff based in Detroit, based in Grand Rapids. We do some very intensive work in Flint. We do some things in Battle Creek and then statewide. And, and what we do is focus on local grassroots co- community leaders, grassroots coalition groups, on how to make the legislative process more accessible and understandable. So how do you understand that state budget? Because most of your local dollars come from either the feds or the state. How can you talk to a legislature? Where do you start? How do you talk about communication? And it's really focused on shifting some of those power balances so people really have a true voice in, in shaping public policy. Yeah. So what about up here at the Mackinac Conference? Uh, do you find enough of your issues in the agenda, in the speakers, in the discussions? Right. I, so one of the big things that we're here talking about uh, this week is the earned income tax credit. Mm-hmm. This is the only bipartisan tax proposal that's on the table. We have a widespread coalition of supporters. Senator Schmidt has proposed increasing it from the 6% to the 30%. Mm-hmm. The governor's budget had it increasing from 6% to 20%. We're really encouraging and pushing for that 30%. And the EITC focuses, it's a, it's a tax credit for working families, either lower income families that are struggling to make it. On average, they get an, uh, $750. 
and that money goes back directly to our economy. And it's used for things like transportation, childcare, groceries, housing repair, things that really sometimes prevent people from fully engaging in the workforce. Yeah. And that's been a big, big topic this week. And I mean, it's a it's a good opportunity to also kind of highlight that Republicans and Democrats generally agree on this. I mean, they don't agree right. on the specifics, but they both agree that this is a good way to help mm-hmm. uh, to help poor families. Right. Uh, we don't have that agreement on everything lots of things, <laughs> right. lots of things. Uh, but we but we do have it there I also wonder what you make of the debate about taxes uh, in, in our state um, Republicans seem to think look this is the time to, to give a, a tax cut to people uh, because we've got extra revenue and uh, Democrats are saying well maybe but uh, maybe it should be more of a rebate or a one-time thing mm-hmm. targeting those so that they affect the people who need it the most uh, is one of the challenges. The EITC is one way, but there are some other things that we could be doing tax policy-wise that would help uh, struggling families. Right, so EITC is our, our primary focus in the, in the tax credit that we're advocating for. I think right now we need to really understand that some of this surplus has is likely just a one-time, short-term surplus. It's not going to be there forever. Right. So <laughs> we do not want to be banking on a tax cut that's really going to be, you know, maybe 50 bucks, maybe 100 bucks for the average citizen in Michigan, the average person in Michigan. We don't want to devastate our state. We know we need infrastructure. We need to work on our roads. We need to invest better in schools. We need to invest in behavioral health and health care. And so we want to use this surplus as an opportunity to make fundamental change within our state rather than something that's not really going to affect the pocketbooks of most people that are struggling. Uh, What about the ARPA funds uh, that are flooding into, you know, state coffers and city coffers? Again, that's one-time money, right. but it's a lot of money, right. and it's more money than we are likely to see again, uh, I, I think, in any state. Uh, how should we be thinking of those things that could make a difference, uh, a long-term difference for, for, for struggling families? Right. So when we look at ARPA, we have about $2.7 billion-ish, roughly, still that needs to be allocated. This is the opportunity for us to make transformational change in Michigan. So I'll talk a little bit about the supplemental bills, mm-hmm. great examples of good things that are happening. We saw an investment in, in housing. We saw an investment in broadband. Broadband is an issue, especially in our rural communities. You need it to access work. You need to access uh, health care if you're using telehealth, your, your health record. And it's important for, the, for these communities to be able to be brought along. And, and we saw some really great progress out of that. And we're hoping to see some good investment uh, with the $2.7 billion. So hopefully more in housing, more uh, workforce development types of issues, health care are, are all some of our priorities. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with Monique Stanton. She's president and CEO of the Michigan League for Public Policy. We're talking in the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island during the Detroit Regional Chamber's annual Mackinac Public Policy Conference. Uh, Monique, I want to talk about the pandemic and what we've learned about poverty and opportunity, things that that we probably should have known before Mm -hmm. and some of us were aware of, but I think that that it have become much more stark uh, because of the pandemic and how we pivot to address those things uh, to make, again, to make the consequences of something like that less devastating on the most vulnerable. 
So during the pandemic, we really relied on workers that were low-income workers in very vulnerable positions. So workers in your uh, grocery stores, they were doing essential work. They had to go to work in, a, in order for uh, in, in order for the world to continue functioning. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that, that we owe these workers a way to help continue to improve their lives. So you're seeing some boosts in wages, which I think is important. It's still not enough to really sustain a family. So things like the Future for Frontliners program, which is job training, to help people develop a better career path are some really important ways that we can help lift people out of poverty. And then for families that were in poverty, maybe they didn't have an essential job that they could go to, or they were legitimately very scared to be out in public because of um, the devastating effects of COVID, uh, it, they were left out. They really struggled. There was you know, concerns about are there going to be boosted eviction, concerns about water shutoffs, utility shutoffs, all of that was, was very significant for those populations. Yeah. So, uh, are you seeing a response that suggests that we've learned from these circumstances, or are we going to experience the same thing again if something else similar happens? So, I'm an eternal optimist, so I think that we've, I think you have to be an optimist to do this work. Uh, so, I do think that we have learned, but we still have more learning to do. I don't think it's been enough. Some of these issues, when we talk specifically, I think, about child care, mm-hmm. that's been pushed to the forefront. You have businesses now talking about child care. And I've been talking about child care for you know, 15 years in my, you know, my career. It's essential for high-quality child care if we want people to be able to be fully engaged in the workforce. And so you're seeing some shifts in things that, and conversations that I think will continue. Mm-hmm. Now, we talk about, going back to the question about you know, some of our lower-wage workers, those essential workers, child care workers direct care workers, yeah. oftentimes these worker, this work is phrased as unskilled labor. Mm-hmm. But whether if you're, if you're a home care worker taking a care of somebody that's a senior or a developmental disability, if you're a child care worker, that is highly it's skilled. Unskilled. It's not unskilled. <laughs> and we need to pay these people more. Yeah. That's why we have shortages in those areas. Yeah. Let's okay. talk more about education and equity in education in particular. A few years ago, we had a report that told us what we needed to do to make uh, the playing fields more level for uh, education for school districts in our state. We've made a lot of progress uh, on that. I wonder what uh, role your advocacy is playing in that conversation. So a big part of what we do is around kids count. So looking at the health, well-being, educational outcomes of kids. We're starting to take a look at our kids uh, successfully going from you know their teen years up through the age of 25. We've historically only looked at the well-being of kids under 18. And then in terms of our budget work, some of it does count, come down to resources. And so how can we shape and shift our tax policy structure to make sure that we're addressing inequitable outcomes? And so something over the next year we're going to be taking a more in-depth look at is can we uh, implement a weighted school funding formula to help improve and address some of those inequities? And that weighted school formula is key. There are states that are using that to incredible effect. Massachusetts, of course, is uh, I think the, the, the outlier there. When you say that, though, in Lansing, I still get very strange looks back. I mean, people are just not ready for that kind of thinking. Right. So I think... Public policy change is definitely a long game. So it's something that we, over the next year, we're really looking at what's the right weight and looking at data and research to make sure that we're making a good, informed decision. And we know it's something that's going to take a lot of advocacy, a lot of education, 
community partners, coalition partners working together to get something implemented. So it's not something that we necessarily think is going to happen overnight, though we would love it. We know that we're going to be needing to work on it. And, and hopefully it doesn't take us as long as 10 years like it did with childcare. We still need more money for childcare, but yeah. it's a good investment. We want to, want to make sure that we're starting that work now because we know it, it doesn't happen overnight. Okay, uh, Monique Stanton, President and CEO of the Michigan League for Public Policy. Always great to see you. Great. Thanks, Stephen. And, Eva. of course, thanks for being here on Detroit Today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. That's going to do it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>